Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. I'm your host, writer Todd Smith, and today we're joined by Andrew Trotter, the Vice President at West Coast Arborists. Andy, welcome to the Public CEO Report. Well, thank you, Ryder. It's a pleasure to join you today. So I've gotten to know West Coast Arborist a bit. Our, my firm, Trippetti Smith, has had the opportunity to work with uh, West Coast Arborists for just over a year now on lots of lots of issues in local government. And I'm excited to talk about what West Coast Arborist is up to. Let's just start with that first. What what is or who is uh, what does West Coast Arborist do? Well, we we help uh, public agencies take care of trees and what we would refer to as our urban forest. The the trees in public spaces uh, throughout cities in California, as well as the uh, greater um, Phoenix area out in Arizona. And how big of a presence do you have? Most of our audience is California-based, but how big of a presence do you guys have in California? I know it's pretty pretty significant. It, it's big. I mean, uh, we're probably 950 employees in California and north of 300 uh, public agencies, so cities, counties, uh, universities, and the like. Yeah. All right. So uh, kind of by by tree maintenance standards in the state of California, you guys strike me as the largest tree services provider in the public sector in the state of California. Is that a fair statement? I think that's a pretty fair statement when related to the public sector, yes. All right. So that'll that'll certainly give us uh, – you have a broad perspective across the state of California with your comments as well as Arizona given – given uh, just the sheer footprint for West Coast Arborists. Um, and then within West Coast Arborists, obviously you're a, a, a vice president. So what's your role and responsibility within West Coast Arborists? Well, it, it's evolved through the years. I started as a you know crew leader, uh, tree foreman, and uh, did tree trimming and the like. And as the company grew, I, I've been there 39 years now. So as the company grew, I became the field operations manager and eventually things like Training and nursery programs and recycling programs all also came underneath my purview, as well as the, the uh, you know the actual field operations. So today we've grown to such an extent that uh, I have managers and vice presidents underneath me, working in all those different areas. So I'm kind of working together to weave together some of those those things to keep keep them moving forward, keep them to the current best management practices and applications. Uh, all right, so a big portfolio of responsibility. And I read recently West Coast Arborists uh, was recognized by the Orange County Business Journal for, I think, Family Business of the Year. Um, and then there was some interesting background on kind of the founding and Pat Mahoney kind of starting it as a teenager effectively and building it out. Would you mind just taking our audience through the the story arc that has been the evolution of West Coast Arborists? Because I think for many, it's just a phenomenal story of the American dream coming to life. Absolutely. Building a business from nothing to something. Absolutely. You know, Pat was literally picked up uh, on the way home from school one day and by somebody that was looking for extra help. George the Tree Man was the name of the company. And he worked for him until the end of high school uh, after that. And it turns out the first job they went to do was even at his parents' home. Uh, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, towards the end of that, uh, his time in high school, uh, brothers went off to become, uh, you know, uh, going to college and things like that. And Pat took the direction of, I'm going to, uh, you know, the company, George the Tree Man, the, the gentleman told him, I want to sell the company. And too bad you didn't save up your money. And Pat said, well, how much does it take? And, you know, the guy told him it was $10,000. And so he uh, went home to his dad, who was a great uh, 
promoter of his his sons, you know, moving forward in business. And together they figured out, uh, I think going down to the local bank, how to get the $10,000 and came back and started the business. So, yeah, I started 39 years ago. There was about 60 employees. And I think uh, last week when we looked at our numbers, we were at uh, 1,033 employees. Incredible. I mean, yes. truly incredible. Yeah. Um, well, uh, lots of hard work, lots of uh, innovation, lots of commitment to core principles help grow businesses. I've, uh, I certainly haven't emulated. I'm not up to a thousand employees yet at my firm, Trepepe Smith, but uh, we're on our way. We got, we got 35 and uh, are growing from there. So we'll see. Someday maybe we'll be as big as West Coast Arborists. Um, so, I, you know, a lot's changed in the tree industry, too, over the years. And you talk about your history there. Uh, and it strikes me that West Coast, particularly given some of the technology they have in place, it's really mind-blowing when I did my first tour. But could you talk a little bit about how the, the space has evolved and how West Coast Arborist has evolved along with, with this idea of trees? I mean, fundamentally, it, it seems to me like people are thinking, well, you just go out and you get on a cherry picker and you cut some limbs, right? But it's, it's strikes me as far more complicated than that. It, it certainly is. And, you know, when when I first started getting involved in the industry and even getting more educated, you know, becoming an arborist was the thing, right? Learn all about trees. A few years later, I realized it was uh, more than just the trees. And people weren't even really universally in our industry discussing this at the time of urban forestry and urban forestry being that practice of blending together all of the different elements that affect trees in, in urbanized areas. And certainly there's a lot of interactions with people that love trees, hate trees, or just don't even pay attention or care. And that evolution has been exciting for me because uh, the whole concepts of urban forestry are strongly rooted now within our industry. And people realize that all those elements working together in an ecosystem is really uh, the best answer out there. So. Uh, a lot of different uh, details, uh, the arborist training and, and certification programs have evolved. Uh, we, we train and certify literally hundreds of certified tree workers, certified arborists at the company, but also board certified master arborists or plant health care, um, you know, advisors and experts. And, uh, you know, and you're talking about the technology, of course, you can't forget the fact that uh, that's really what's allowed us to do the volume we do. So internally, we have our own IT department that has developed our programs uh, for internal management as well as customer management of their urban forest. So Arbor Access is a, a software program that runs literally like 7 million trees and data points for all the customers we serve. And then internally, we have a, a program that's our operations tracking and information system we call Otis that every department in the company has modules they work in, but all that data can cross-talk to each other. So you can start looking at GPS and who's filling up the gas pump right now, and technology tells you, you know, what truck that fuel is going into, as well as the, the tree trimming aspect of a field crew being able to recognize maybe a problem in a tree and take a picture of it and load it straight into the uh, inventory database for the the customer to be able to say, oh, uh, here's an alert for a tree that I should go take a look at and decide what direction the, the public agency wants to take with taking care of that that issue. So when I toured, was was given a tour of the Arbor Access platform, I mean, I just reflected in my head that, yes, it's a tree trimming 
business and tree urban forest maintenance organization in a broader envelope. Um, it's also a software company. Like it's, it's, I can't, I don't know how many people are in your IT department. I get the sense it was somewhere between six and 12. Uh, but it's, and it's, these aren't just folks who are crawling around under desks, fixing mice and rebooting computers and solving microphone problems, but these are actual coders who are sitting there writing code and uh, creating software. Yes. And that's what's exciting being part of that system that says, hey, we'd like to be able to track this or, you know, get a report that helps us understand the, the implications of something else. And, you know, we can go and I'm part of our uh, research and development team at West Coast trying to give the field operations perspective in the development of that so that we tie together, uh, you know, the technology with the typical field applications, right? And making them real world. So it's uh, really exciting and it's also stuff that we've shared even beyond our company. Recently, we've been working on projects with uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and the folks over there trying to understand the changes in, um, you know, urban tree populations and species with, you know, changing environments and maybe changing resources to take care of trees. And so we, we're, we're sharing it beyond, uh, you know, ourselves and our customers, but as a is a more global application as well. So very, very exciting. And, you know, people these days are looking for, you know, the environmental values of, of why we're doing this, that, or the other thing. And certainly trees have a big opportunity to play in that space. So uh, helping calculate, you know, stormwater management or carbon sequestration, as well as, you know, when was that tree trimmed last and do I need to put it on a list so it gets its regular cycle of pruning and, and things like that. Yeah, so you started touching on, I guess, a fundamental point, which is we got a lot of people power and software power and commitment. And of course, you're one of other entities that are out there providing tree services. And there are many public agencies with in-house staff that also do supplemental work around this. So, and then there are the whole private sector also that uh, has their own trees to maintain. Um, fundamentally, it's a lot of a lot of time being spent on a lot of trees and uh, a lot of resource being dedicated to sustaining and creating those urban forests. And then you have cities who make substantial investments, frankly, in trying to become Tree Cities USA and get that renewed on a consistent basis and uh, carry that as a point of pride. And so it, I guess, you know, the average person would say, why? Why does this matter? Why are we so fascinated with having urban forests? Um, so I'll put that question to you, Andy, why? <laughs> Well, you know, as I said earlier, I can remember going down the street as a as a crew leader and, you know, running in and talking to people and realizing some people love trees and some people hated trees and some people didn't care. So those are the reasons why. But uh, we definitely see a, a movement in the in the um, spectrum of views and, of course, the general public being concerned about environmental issues and what can we do about them? And trees link into almost every one of those aspects, whether it's water or energy or air quality and carbon sequestration. Uh, trees in, you know, uh, do have environmental uh, impacts that they have. And uh, just like a lot of things, there are probably positives and negatives to that. Uh, but there's definitely an overwhelming positive opportunity with trees. So uh, you know, even to the point of like in the last few years, one of the exciting things that I've worked on with our urban wood division is um, schools in L.A. Uh, school district are switching to uh, are trying to create outdoor learning uh, reading circles, outdoor classrooms. 
And, you know, uh, so we're helping them, you know, repurpose, you know, you know, trees that got removed from the city and put them back and making these really cool log benches for reading circles and planting trees. And the why behind that is because research has been done that we know as a fact, uh, learning in a, um, a green environment and, you know, in that calmness that's created by having trees around me creates a, a better retention in learning starting at a young age and it's cumulative. Uh, we've heard that kind of research also even affecting uh, health. And we've, I, I can recall hearing, you know, Kaiser uh, article, uh, you know, advertisements touting the fact that, you know, they have green spaces uh, around their, their hospitals to help uh, that kind of thing. So uh, there's a lot of uh, science behind those things and people are realizing that uh, the, the amount that they give, even though it's a little bit to each one of those things, stormwater retention is a big deal, right? So if we have a canopy of trees and rainwater hits it, it takes longer to percolate uh, down to the storm drain area. It has a better chance of getting into our groundwater than if it just hits pure concrete, rushes out to the ocean. Of course, there accumulates into what we call pollution because too much you know, particulates are picked up along the way. Uh, going out to where we hit our oceans with our rivers. So I could probably go on and on in that subject. It's, it's exciting and it's pretty easy to Google some of the facts behind it. I was reading a um, uh, article this morning about mass timber construction and how they're building 25 uh, story tall buildings out of large timbers as being a really renewable resource uh, that is actually better for carbon sequestration than concrete and steel that uses a ton of, uh, you know, energy in order to create those products. So it's exciting. And, and our job is to try and blend these things together to try and become practical with them. And that's, uh, that's pretty amazing to think of 20 story plus structures that are built out of wood that uh, I didn't think that was really possible. Yeah, well, it's in Milwaukee and you can, you can look it up on your internet. I just was struck by it and, articulating the different values of these things, pretty exciting stuff. Uh, our urban wood division today is literally making music from urban trees. And, and we found environmentally minded companies, in particular Taylor Guitars, decided that uh, they they don't want to chase, you know, uh, wood all over the planet and, and try to bring it back. Ebony from Cameroon and Koa from Hawaii. And they do have projects for restoration of those species there because those are the traditional species used in guitar making, but they've gone into a really uh, deep uh, effort towards trying to use the tree in their own backyard, urban trees. And they found that some of the trees that grow right here in California, in particular, one of them is green ash, is just got this a musical, uh, amazing musical tone to it. So they're real excited and, and their audience is very excited about the opportunity to use those products. So you, uh, there's so much to dive into in your uh, response there. So uh, I guess first thing you talked about your wood recycling program. Could you explain that a little bit more more detail? My understanding is you'll take trees where you have to cut them down, for example, and rather than them just getting chipped up and taken to the dump, you actually bring them back to a couple of facilities you have across California and plain or otherwise manipulate that wood to make it into usable, beautiful pieces of wood. And I say they're beautiful, having seen some of them when I toured your facility in Anaheim, um, to turn them into something that's actually useful and can be repurposed. And you also talked about benches, for example. So could you just explain a little bit more about that? 
Well, I mean, the fact is that, you know, there's millions of trees growing in our urban environment. So as a, as a company taking care of trees, we're constantly planting, pruning, and at end of life, removing trees. That, that's, you know, always decided by the local public agency. Sometimes if we see something, we'll say, hey, you should go take a look at it. But the local agency says, oh, it, it goes beyond our willingness to manage it for risk, or it needs to come out for whatever reasons they qualify. And so at that time, in, in between that and our tree trimmings, we're generating 700 tons of biomass a day. And so people say, where does it all go? And the reality is it goes everywhere, right? So uh, for decades, we've been looking for the highest and best end use of, of those kind of biomass, uh, you know, opportunities. And, you know, um, as a young arborist, uh, as well as a person who enjoyed doing woodworking from when I was young and even in high school or whatever, uh, I, I took home a few logs and started milling them up with a chainsaw and uh, a few decades later, Pat Mahoney's son, John Mahoney, saw uh, that opportunity and got really inspired, and he started our street tree revival uh, division at the company. And so today, it's it's several thousand board feet of lumber a day that are kind of pulled out of the, the best of the best of the potential logs, uh, but we hope to keep on increasing the species that we're using, and, and every day we're finding oh, that species is good for this or that species is good for that. And so it's able you know, to add on more that we can recover in that way, as well as other recycling things. So we're doing you know, wood mulch and things like that for you know, moisture retention and landscape enhancement. So it's trying to you know, repurpose everything as close to local as possible. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's impressive. And uh, uh, that, that fresh cut wood, man, it smells really good too. It's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. That's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. So what cities contract with West Coast Arborists and other entities to maintain their urban forests, uh, those trees are typically in the medians and along the right-of-ways and in their parks and other spaces. Um, uh, this is part of their effort to be Tree Cities USA. It's I think the recognized benefits, as you noted, are trying to combat um, kind of heat zones that that uh, or heat islands that are formed from having a lot of concrete on the ground, creating shade. Obviously, trees are good about pulling CO2 out of the air and then uh, generating uh, clean, fresh oxygen that goes back into the urban areas and, and helps out with the environment on that front. So, uh, you know, I've never it's hard for me to imagine people who hate trees, but I, I can, I'll take your word for it that they exist. I can well, understand. Well, think about it. Think about it. In a public environment, my job is to be in charge of the hardscape. My job is to be in charge of, uh, you know, the streets maybe. And so, you know, it, it's not very hard for me to see where that person would say, oh, that's a that's a negative for me. Or, you know, that because darn that tree drop ruin the street or ruin the sidewalk. Yeah, they can lift. That's the reality, you know, and, and part of the whole equation is to try to find the right match of species for the space to grow it in and have enough space. But obviously we can get lifted up hardscape and things like that. And, oh, uh, you know, if, if my sewer system was clay pipes and 50, 60 years old, eventually it leaks. And guess what gets drawn in, attracted by that leaking moisture is tree roots. And so... Right. You know, fortunately, today we have different methods to manage those things. But to some people, they can be considered an annoyance. And that yeah. is a that is a fact. So that's fair. That's fair. I And I can see why people push back on that. Uh, our cake and eat it, too. Like, we want the trees. We want the, the beauty and the environmental benefits. 
but they also come with risk issues that need to be addressed. I know that's a big area of focus for West Coast Arborists and frankly for the public agencies as well that they have a public and elected officials who want those want a beautiful tree landscape. They want that kind of pleasant parkway that you drive down. Um, they love the beauty that comes with it, but that also comes with certain certain risks, right? The, and we've seen lawsuits related to these issues and trying to mitigate those risks. Could you talk a little bit about the role that West Coast Arborists can play in helping agencies address the, you know, what those risks are and how West Coast Arborists works to mitigate risk? Well, every time I think I've figured out every risk, a new one will pop up tomorrow for me to learn about. Fair and enough. it is a wide spectrum. Of course, the obvious things like a displaced sidewalk or a blocked uh, streetlight or sign, you know, could lead to a traffic accident or, oh, of course, a tree that, that falls apart and, and falls on a car or even worse, you know, a home or something. Those are all risks. And, and all trees have some level of risk, right? Uh, and so we can't completely remove all of that risk, but we can do the best we can to try to mitigate that risk. And it is many different facets to it. You know, as you uh, shared that thought that you wanted to discuss that today, I thought to myself, where for us, risk management starts with some of our industry standards. So we have an ANSI, American National Standard Institute, A300, that talks about how thou shalt take care of trees to be safe, okay? Uh, from the tree structure point to also the employee worker uh, uh, point, right? And then there's other compendium documents that go with the A300. There's a Z133 that's focused real heavily on worker safety. Obviously, that's an area of risk that we're super uh, concerned about, uh, risk to our employees, risk to the public, uh, and even private property, but the two most important are the human side of things. And so that's for the major reason we prune trees. Uh, our industry also has best management practices that kind of give us the how to uh, you know, implement the things that are called out in the Z133 and the A300. So those all, I was thinking, and as I was thinking that this morning, um, I was thinking, you know, 10 feet one direction from my office and my desk is my training manager. 10 feet the other direction is a library with all those, uh, you know, documents, all those standards uh, and best management practices uh, that we train our staff to live by. And so we're also trying to educate and train our customers on that. And our customers are, uh, especially the people that are maybe urban forest managers and such, they're all going to workshops and conferences, the same kind of ones that we're attending. And we're all learning together, hey, there's a better way to do it today than there was 30 years ago. And then we go implement those things. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from, you know, I know the inventories is a huge part of trying to figure out where you're at, the, collect the data of how trees are doing and things like that. But, you know, uh, proper site planting, uh, you know, pruning so that we remove, uh, you know, Sometimes if you have an untrained uh, tree cutter, let's call them, uh, you know, pruning on your tree, they're arbitrarily thinning out branches, whereas a trained arborist is going to know which branches I should cut and why. And, you know, try to emulate the natural uh, needs of that tree without overdoing it. And uh, but look for potential defects that could lead to problems. So. Uh, that's part of what we're trying to do all day long in, in our inventories and in our record keeping is, you know, every time we prune a tree or remove a tree, plant a tree, do anything to a tree, 
we, we give a record in these tree databases, these inventories that the customers get. And they really are what compulate the bills for the customers, right? It's almost like the way your phone bill comes. Sure. And so when, when that goes to the customers, if we have a tree that, and I mentioned earlier that the crew can actually flag a problem out there. Well, they'll get a list of things that they should go take a, a you know, do further inspection is what it's called, right? Sometimes that means remove it. Sometimes that might mean, oh, I can mitigate it by pruning. And sometimes it also has to do with, you know, we've definitely heard a lot uh, over the most recent years about different kinds of disease and bug infestations that we get on our urban forests. So early heads up on uh, plant health care. Oh, there's a potential, you know, disease concern with that tree. And, and you know, with our resource we have in the plant health care department, we can help, uh, you know, give solutions for those things. And, and that department as well helps customers even develop urban forest management plans. So, you know, to adopt the, the latest standards and practices and set up protocols that help reduce these risks. Again, we can't remove them all because there's a lot of dynamic things. You know, a field crew going down the street pruning a tree, they're not going to be able to tell under the soil level if there's decay in the roots that could cause that tree to fall over, right? Um, you know, when it comes to things like, uh, you know, we've had lately a lot of discussion about site conditions, okay, uh, lifted up sidewalk and such. And there becomes a question of how much should WCA do to report and track and mitigate all the different elements there. And I'm going to advocate that we should be focused on the tree aspects of, of the sites and that we are not necessarily um, hardscape specialists or ADA compliance specialists. Uh, and so there's so many different risks that I think we can help a lot with the cities and we can communicate what we do, but there's a lot more to the equation as well. Right. Well, those risks, I mean, clearly at some point, the easiest way to mitigate the risk entirely is just remove every tree. <laughs> but but uh, that isn't a real solution because people actually want trees. So like in all things in life, we have to uh, have take reasonable risk if we're going to have the benefits of a glorious urban forest that provides shade and cleaner air and reduces the temperature on the on the ground and provides something beautiful to look at or provides habitat for birds or and other animals to, to live in and enjoy that um, tries to bring us closer to nature and what is our otherwise highly urbanized California environment that the vast majority of our population lives in. Yeah, let's not forget to mention that it's nicer to be in shade that's 10 or 15 degrees cooler than an area with no shade. Yeah. Right. Yeah, 100%. Um, what, you know, we've covered a lot of territory here that frankly we think our local elected officials should be aware of and professional city staff who uh, maybe listening to this podcast since we target those folks uh, and try to really speak to their interests and needs. Any additional comments you'd want to offer that elected officials should just be aware of or how they can learn more or what they should be cognizant of in the urban forest development and what that looks like? Well, obviously, as we talked, it's extremely complex. And, you know, there's urban ecologists that I've met lately that, you know, in the city of LA and places where people are trying to bundle these things together. And, Probably the most important thing, obviously, is to, in my view, is to have a urban forester that's helping you manage your tree population in your city. You know, we as a contractor can bring a lot of resource to the table um, and do a lot of the heavy lifting or share data that we collect and such. But 
having a uh, a really sharp uh, urban forester that understands the the latest dynamics in that area managing your trees is a huge thing and i think the other part that's probably equally as important is a, a person in your planning department that has that kind of knowledge um, when it comes to planning, if we if we plan and, and inadvertently or don't aren't thoughtful of what species goes in a particular spot, we are quite frankly uh, creating future conflict. You know, and we see too many cases where, you know, one citizen group says save the tree, the, you know, somebody else says cut them down. We can't afford the risk or, or or those kind of things. And you know, most of those things could be reduced by thoughtful planning. You know, trees need the space and. And uh, a lot of people say, right tree, right space. Uh, I would say for the stakeholders' goals, because, uh, you know, again, with the diverse opinions out there, a lot of people have different, I care more about the water, I care more about the hardscape, or I care more about the environmental values. So understanding those spectrums and figuring out how to balance them together is really having a, a sharp uh, urban forest manager. And, and of course, they're going to need the resources to be able to do the job that they're tasked with. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, public education about the value of trees is important uh, so that you can have, you know, reasonable supporting budgets, you know, uh, to be able to get those jobs done. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, that's, uh, I mean, those are, those are all fantastic points. I agree. I was just, I was just contemplating uh, you know, along those lines of of the power of forest too. I, I, so I recently took a trip to to Florida, um, and which has a you know lots of water and lots of sunshine. <laughs> and I was on the east coast of Florida, up in the top right corner area in Nassau County. And the urban forest there, in what is an area that's probably had housing in it for twenty and thirty years, but they've done an amazing job of maintaining a gorgeous urban forest, wrapping around these houses. Um, oak trees that, you know, have these arms that go way, reach way out wide. Uh, but seemingly uh, folks either with proper planning and proper mitigation have high confidence in there. And this is, by the way, an area that occasionally gets some very high windstorms, if not three in the last hundred years, they've had hurricanes, uh, you know, but they figure out how to make it work. And it, it's truly, it's, and especially for an environment that has a lot of sunlight, therefore a lot of heat, the trees are a huge value add for their ability to just make it a much more pleasant environment to live in. Yes. And we certainly have that in lots of places in California, but where we don't give enough space. And, and it's one of the phenomenons that we have going on, right, in uh, expensive land and, and development going on. We're literally losing, you know, soil uh, to have space for trees. And so that's definitely a planning issue. And mm-hmm. But it's all uh, an issue that, you know, goes into the whole affordable uh, homes and and, and those kind of uh, thoughts as well. So there's, but I think of, I, you know, go throughout California a fair amount. So, I mean, go to some of the communities in uh, Sacramento area where we also have more rainfall, although, you know, less than we would like to have. Uh, and trees grow really well, but they can grow well in, in our environment and do. Um, there's a lot of effort going on these days to try and understand, okay, don't talk about why, but just the fact that, Things are getting hotter and, you know, what trees are going to do well in the future. So there's a, a really great resource. I mentioned earlier, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo has a program they call the Urban Forest Ecosystem Institute. And it's led by Matt, uh, Dr. Matt Ritter from up at the college there and a lot of other professors working with him. But they have a, um, 
a uh, part of their website there that's called Selectree. And you can simply do an internet search on that. And it shows all the different species uh, that they have recorded. And it's like 400 plus species. Mm. And it helps you, uh, you know, learn more about those species before you plant them. But the other thing Dr. Ritter's doing and, and others in our industry are growing some trees that are, uh, you know, maybe not the ones that we planted uh, in the same communities 30 years ago, but ones that might be tolerant of, uh, you know, some la intermittent water, intermittent rainfall, and things are going to be drought tolerant. Doesn't mean they can't use a lot of water, means they can last between waterings. And so uh, they're, they're out there experimenting with those things. That's another one of the fun projects that we're working on in the plant thousands of trees from those lists to try to find out which ones are going to be our, our future, you know, more sustainable. The better we can match the tree that we plant with its characteristics and needs in the environment, the least care we have to apply to that tree. Right. About it. So obviously if I'm a tree that needs a ton of water, then I'm going to have to go water it. And, you know, and water is a big deal for us. Or if I am going to plant a tree, you know, a wonderful tree, but maybe, you know, challenged in the environment that was planted in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was the ficus tree in downtown areas. And it, it had a tremendous amount of hardscape damage. And then every downtown area loves their holiday celebrations and likes to put twinkle lights in trees. The ficus tree grows in a really dense canopy. And so every year they say, well, now we got to go, you know, heavily prune these trees in order to uh, be able to have the twinkle lights show. So that's an example of, you know, maybe if we're thoughtful about what species we planted, we wouldn't have to go have a commitment to annually prune those trees and it would help us reduce our risk as well as our overhead expense. And that's what those are the kind of reasons you need an urban forester uh, on your team. All right. So that's what I was going to ask. So is that the kind of stuff that gets addressed in urban forest management plan? And then do you, does West Coast Arbors collaborate with cities to provide that if they don't have their own urban forester? Yeah, or do you? Yeah. Um, we're just putting the wrapping touches on one for a local Orange County city right now. And they're often, uh, you know, a process that might take one or two years even to complete back and forth with community uh, stakeholder inputs, obviously looking at what you have what your challenges are, and, you know, coming up with different solution schemes. Uh, they often will, they'll talk about the overall management, which practices and standards get utilized. Uh, one that we've been adding in a lot lately is uh, consideration for birds and wildlife. Mm -hmm. uh, wildlife and birds in particular are a big uh, interest to a lot of people. So from my perspective, they add another advocate for the, the tree world. So uh, those management plans, we help them put together. They even sometimes go in a street-by-street -street basis to evaluate, okay, the width of the parkway is their overhead wires, you know, create a palette of, of trees, a, a list of species broken down by attributes so that I can, you know, maximize the growth space and not, you know, put a little bitty tree in a big growth space, but also not uh, put in a tree that's going to grow, you know, super, super large in a small growth space. Right. Uh, yeah, well, uh, cl clearly important given the nuances and details there uh, to try to get those things planned out properly. And I, I was having a conversation with uh, another member of the team there at West Coast Arborist, and we were just discussing how 
government agencies, they focus a lot on their capital plant management, right? So pavement management index and their streets as a as a big capital asset. Uh, and part of the point of the conversation was just noting that trees are also part of that capital plant asset that public agencies have. They add value for all the reasons we've already talked about. Uh, the nice thing is, generally speaking, healthy when healthy, it grows. So it's it's an asset that actually keeps growing and getting better and better with time, uh, within reason over its size and depending upon if it's managed growth for that for that asset. Um, and that tracking that asset becomes super important. Now it's not as easy, you know. Streets are linear, and you have lots of data on them, and so it's a much more controllable asset than the organic nature of trees. But uh, it strikes me that with particularly with how often you all are touching trees and your documentation work. Um, you're generating GIS mapped data, uh, and I think you even make it available to the GIS departments at your client agencies if they want to overlay some of that data on their existing maps so they can really integrate that asset into their overall planning and holistic view of what's going on in the city. Correct. We absolutely do. And, you know, the whole value of trees is a, is a, a complex equation, right? You know, if I buy a fire hydrant or a street light, it costs X to put in, and we you know, diminish the value over time and we replace it 20, 30 years later or whatever our deal is. With trees, of course, as you mentioned, they grow over time. So they start out at a lower value. Uh, and then as they get bigger, they have more of these environmental values. And then they also, as they get to be, you know, larger and larger, they have liabilities, right? You know, uh, they can become, you know, if you're a 120 foot elm in downtown Sacramento, to prune that tree can be a lot of money, right. you know, uh, so right. the bigger they are, the more they are to prune, but also the, the, the factor of, oh, it's outgrowing its space. Maybe, uh, you know, it's dropping limbs. Um, and, and so those parts of liability or, or breaking up the hardscape or, uh, so those parts of liability. So it's an interesting equation. Uh, and that's why it probably throws us into all that controversy as trees reach this point where, it's a tug of war between uh, their value and the liability, right? And when is it best to remove it? And of course, there's no black and white answer there. Those are kind of community-based decisions based on their willingness to tolerate risk. So as a contractor, we can share with them, you know, uh, some of the facts, at least that are easily visible and, and shareable. Um, but the community has to decide if, if they're gonna be risk adverse then they're probably going to remove more trees and plant new ones, hopefully as a replacement. Um, or are they going to tolerate, you know, for years and decades, I watched many foothill communities, let's say up in the north part of L.A., that would tolerate a lot of, you know, sidewalks that just go up and down. And uh, But then maybe there becomes some litigation. All of a sudden, one day that tune uh, changes, right? right. So. Uh, those, those are very dynamic community-based struggles. So back to the planning thing, maybe we can reduce those things if we have more space and put the right tree in the right place. Yeah. Uh, I want to uh, turn to a kind of final subject area in my mind that I know is on the mind of lots of folks these days, which has to do with wildfire mitigation. And obviously trees are kind of central to wildfires and um and you know maybe reconciling or talking about urban forests, it's a little bit hard to discuss urban forests when many of the wildfires are more in the rural areas, and then they abut up against what's referred to inter internally, right, or inside this inside the local government world as the WUI, the wildland urban interface. There you go. And as our as our 
population continues to push out more into the wildlands, we're creating more buildings and structures that are inside these forests and abutted up against uh, wildfire zones and creating more risk for those in particular. So we're both seeing uh, increased fire activity and also we have more and more people that are proximate to where those fires are. So we end up with disasters like paradise, for example. Um, sure. So that's kind of a, a long, long-winded intro to this subject of wildfire mitigation. And I'm just curious as a expert in the space of trees and their integration into habitable environments where people are, what, what does that mean from the role that West Coast Harbors plays in either having observations on or, or strategies for helping uh, communities and cities mitigate wildfire risk? Well, I mean, you're you're definitely correct. In an inner city area, it's a minimal uh, impact, right? Although I would bring up uh, one one particular um, perspective that I've seen, and I'll never forget. Um, in you know, our office is right here in Anaheim, California, and I remember several decades ago, um, this this giant apartment complex was like a whole city block, and I mean, we're you know very large. Uh, apartment complex with lots of palms around it that hadn't been pruned forever, right? So they have those long skirts, 30, 40 feet of those dry fronds on there. And, you know, of course, some bottle rocket fireworks thing at some point goes into one of them and they lose that entire, uh, you know, complex. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is the city, you know, adjusted code after the fact to say, uh, thou shalt not allow more than X amount of growth of tree uh, of of fronds uh, on the tree, uh, on palm trees. So that's something to consider. Uh, palm trees in urbanized areas with lots of that tinder, you know, dried fronds on them are definitely a concern for for us. And then you go into that uh, interface area, open space. Everybody likes that open space in the periphery of housing developments and stuff. So. Uh, we do do tree trimming in those areas, and you know most of your fire codes are going to tell you to, you know, kind of escalate outwards on how much treatment you do in those areas to thinning out things to, you know, um, uh, you know up against homes and such to almost uh, more of a clear environment. I know lots of people that live in local canyon areas that are having challenges getting. Um, you know, fire insurance, right, for their homes. Yep. And they're told to, you know, remove or cut the heck out of all the trees that, of course, those are the reasons they moved to those communities because they have all that canopy of trees over their home. Yeah. So it's a very difficult, very difficult situation. And if you've been involved closely with wildfires, it definitely changes your perspective from, you know, save all vegetation to, hey, it's okay to cut it back some. So uh, the services that we're providing, we we are uh, growing a little bit, doing more of that stuff. We actually um, these days own a, a what they call a, a mulching or masticator machine that goes on the front of a uh, a little track loader so that you can go around and grind up brush in those interface areas. Or crews will prune that material uh, and put it in rows where we pull it out with chippers or or grind it up with the masticators and. Uh, so we are doing more of that work. Uh, I've got a bunch of projects up in the Bay Area around that kind of work right now going on. Well, it's uh, it's important work and something that's certainly on top of mind for folks. And, um, you know, it's great to have an asset like West Coast Arborist out there joining the battle with local government agencies and fire districts and whatnot, trying to mitigate these fire risks and at the same time trying to preserve the beauty and splendor and asset that is 
uh, a lovely urban forest and trees in general to make our make our planet a better place. As a guy who grew up in the Northwest, I'm a sucker for trees. So, well, I I grew up here locally, and I'm also a sucker for trees. So, <laughs> and I that's fair. love trees all across our country. That's for sure. I love my Sierras. I love everything to do with trees. It's yeah. easy. Well, Andy, um, I, I think that pretty much covered some of the areas I wanted to cover today. Anything else you wanted to cover today in terms of West Coast Arborist and what you guys are up to? Well, I mean, you mentioned it's a, you know, we earned that uh, or were recognized with that uh, family business award. And and that is uh, an interesting part of what we do here at West Coast Arborist. It is a family oriented company. Uh, it's a great career uh, oriented company. I mean, our company is a company that that uh, likes to hire people at entry level. Uh, even this week, I have uh, uh, a training program going down at a scout camp owned by Orange County uh, Boy Scouts, and where we're taking care of hazardous trees down there while we're training employees. So, if uh, people know people interested in the uh, the the career of urban forestry, it's a great career. Uh, it can create amazing uh, growth opportunities individually, uh, and so it's it's a fun career that you can go in so many different directions too. It's not just all about the tree trimming, although. Of course, that's kind of core to what we do, but there's so many different elements that uh, we work on, you know, helping cities even get grants to plant more trees or do this fire mitigation, or, you know, we have grants right now for, uh, you know, job development, encouraging more people in the industry. And so uh, it's a great place to work, and it's also a great industry to work in. I was, uh, my one anecdote I'll share with that is I was in Ventura County and I stopped off at a McDonald's to get some, uh, something to drink. And there was West Coast Arborist crew in the parking lot getting ready for their work day. Um, And so I I chatted them up a little bit, told them I I did some work with West Coast Arborists and whatnot. And uh, I could just see the, I mean, these were, you know, young, young fellows, um, but they were fired up about the work. They uh, were, they were excited about kind of having the opportunity to feed their families and take care of business. And um, it was just, and they were definitely committed to hard work, right? It was just, I, I was, I knowing Pat, uh, the owner of West Coast Arborist, as they do, I'm sure he would have been immensely proud of the conversation, what the words that were coming out of the mouths of the team that were there in Ventura County. And I, I suspect that is uh, pervasive throughout the organization. Culture matters a lot. Um, it's something I'm really proud of, the culture of my organization. That's great to see that uh, West Coast Arborist has placed such an important value on culture and the quality of the team members that work there as well. Yeah, so obviously when we all care about that common goal we're working on together and have things that help us support our families, it's uh, you're making me proud just sharing that story. Great. Well, thank you for West Coast Arborist for what you do. That is today's report. My thanks to Andy for joining us from the whole public CEO team and myself, writer Todd Smith. Thank you for your time. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that'll help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, please email alex at publicceo.com.